Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where I am the founding director of the Product Management Center, a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. And every week, we are here to serve our mission, really to enrich the lives of diverse product managers and aspiring product managers. And this is all possible thanks to a chance meeting. Well, not chance, actually, Red set it up. But about a year ago, almost, we're zeroing in on our year anniversary where every week I'm joined by Sumeya Benganam. Sumeya, thanks for really starting something special here together. Yes, absolutely. This has been great. A year of doing this, the amazing conversations we've had with the community, the knowledge we've all shared. I'm excited to continue and have another great year under our belts. Yes. Yeah, so we're we're almost, we're zeroing in. I think it was in February, but we're zeroing in on a year. So it's always good to kind of build up to that one year anniversary with enthusiasm and excitement. And Sumeya and I are normally joined by Red Rasek, who, who made this possible. And we pick a topic every week that is important to product managers. And this week we are talking about experimentation and we are living like the magic of the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, which blends together thought leadership from practitioner, from product managers and product executives like Sumeya with the, the expertise and, and the research backing of interdisciplinary faculty. And today we're joined by a marketing professor who has some interesting research on experimentation. Before I get to introduce our professor who's joining me, it's now two professors. So this is the first time ever we have 60% of the stage be professors. Before we get to him, Sumeya, why is experimentation an important topic and why is it worthy of bringing in some of the latest research to our conversation? Yes, absolutely. Well, experimentation for those who have heard me before, you know that I love talking about experimentation, large experiments and small experiments, because at the core of any culture that's based on learning, experimentation is a big part of how that gets done. You learn so much from experimentation. And if you do experimentation the right way, not only will you be able to build products well, but also learn a lot as you as you go through it. So for today's conversation, I am excited to hear from both professors here, definitely outnumbered in terms of knowledge and expertise. So yeah, turn it over back to you, Jeff. And let's fix that outnumbered here. Poor Sumeya should not be the product executive or product manager on the panel. So if anybody wanted to join, I know we're going to have a fruitful conversation with Sumeya and Professor Berman. I'll give the, I won't just call him Ron. I'll give him the, the gravitas uh, that he would like, or I don't know if he would like it, but I'll give him gravitas. But anyway, don't just don't let Sumeya be outnumbered. If you want to raise your hand, if you are a product manager who's got some experience and something to say about experimentation, raise your hand with that button down at the bottom and join us in this conversation. We're going to have a great conversation if it's just Sumeya and Ron, but we would welcome other experts on experimentation. And Ron, 
Professor Berman, it is your time to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you teach, what you teach, and what your general focus of research. Hi, Jeff. It's great to... I guess, to talk to you, not to meet you today. And nice to meet you, Sumeya. And yeah, I prefer that you call me Ron because Professor Berman is way too formal. So I'm Ron Berman. I teach at the Wharton School of Business here in Philadelphia, at the University of Pennsylvania. And I teach digital marketing. This is what I focus on. I teach that to the undergrad program, the MBA program, and also to executives. And also I do research in digital marketing. But when I mean research in digital marketing, usually I try to focus either on developing new tools for marketers to do analytics, but I'm usually much more interested in given a tool, what do marketers do with it? So let's say today we're going to talk about experimentation. If I give you a new experimentation platform, what you are going to do with it, what other companies are going to do with it, and maybe we can learn how to improve those decisions, or maybe we can change the tool, or maybe we'll just uh, kind of learn an interesting story to tell. All right. And so Ron's going to talk a little bit about some research that I think is pretty relevant to A-B testing and how you design experiments. But I want to first hear from Sumeya. Can you share a little bit for those? These conversations are supposed to be accessible and inclusive to people who want to get into product management and people who have been in it for years. So talk briefly about your perspective on how you've approached A-B testing. When do you conduct A-B testing? Why do you conduct A-B testing? Just give a little bit of color to um, experimentation in that form. Sure, absolutely. So I think in general, if we were to start from the top, there are a couple of approaches. Usually there is a quantitative approach that relies heavily on, you know, data and metrics. And then there is a qualitative approach. The AB AB testing is within that quantitative one. And not every situation or every decision is appropriate for it. So I wanted to start there. You you know, you always think about the decision you need to make or the thing you need to learn about, the result you want to get to, and then decide what type of experiment makes the most sense. Today, we're going to focus a little more on A-B testing, so we can go there, but it doesn't mean that it's the right kind of testing or experimentation for everything. For example, for most... Uh, enterprise products where you don't have that many users or you don't have much of a statistical significance of anything, A-B testing is probably not the right thing to use. And then also, uh, depending on the kind of change or the, the level of risk that can, you know, be applied or that you need to consider, you might decide for, to, to go with a qualitative experiment rather than a quantitative one. So there, are, there, there is nuance here that I think is important. I would say the most appropriate places where I have seen and I have used A-B testing have been in consumer-related products where we've had, you know, hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of users uh, or millions of users. And that and that's one. And two, where we wanted to test bigger, bigger bets. So it would take us months to get something thoughtfully done. And instead of doing that, we would do a thin slice that we would show to just part of the population and test it with it and, and get early results that tell us whether we should invest further or not. So those are a a couple of the things I've had experience with, but I would love to hear from uh, you guys on what else you've seen. 
Yeah, and I'll just pause too to give a little uh, to echo what you said, Samaya, so it doesn't get lost with the, just the mountain of great evidence, a uh, great insights that you shared. Is you know the reason we're uh, the reason product managers are encouraged to experiment is because you don't know which bets are going to pay off, right? We have hypotheses and we we have conjectures as to what customers want based off of the data that we have. But at some level, you have to make some smaller bets before you go all in. And so those smaller bets might be a, a formal A-B test or it could be just customer interviews with prototypes. But you want to start seeing what a new world could look like and how, how people will react to it. We're going to dive a little deeper into A-B testing in particular because Ron uh, has some research that's recently published in Marketing Science that I think is relevant to, to product managers as they decide, as you decide in the audience, what kind of experiments to do and what conclusions to draw from those experiments and maybe what conclusions perhaps not to draw from them. So Ron, real high level, accessible, what'd you find that, that might surprise the, some of the audience who have done A-B testing? So let me first start to say what A-B testing we're looking at. So, so in our research, we're looking at, at uh, website A-B testing, right? So you have a web page and you have maybe two versions of this web page. Either you change the color, you change the text, maybe you change the product that appears there, you can change the price. These are website A-B tests. So for example, not like I've seen uh, physical A-B tests where you change the design of a store in a different city. So we're not talking about these. And what we find, we basically find kind of two major things. In our data, we have a lot of tests. So we kind of try to say, if you picked a random test, or if you try to say what is the average effect of a test, like by how much does a test, let's say, increase the conversion rate, the number of people who buy a product or something like that on a web page, the answer is kind of zero, okay? Which means that those experimenters that we have, and I'll describe later who they are and what they did, et cetera, Either they're not very good at coming up with great ideas on how to affect user behavior, or it's really, really hard, right? Like they're trying the best they can to find variations in web pages that would affect user behavior that will make them click more. And on average, what they get is no improvement over the current default. So this is the first thing. The second thing, this is slightly more technical, but actually quite important. When you run an A-B test, usually today, uh, there's a lot of software that helps you to run the test, and in the end, it tells you if the result is what's called statistically significant. So it says, suppose you run version A and version B. Uh, let's think of an email test or a website test. On version A of the web page, you see 1% conversion rate, so 1% of the people click on the page. And on website on web page B, you see 2% conversion rate. The difference of 2% to 1%, it can be for two reasons. Either, indeed, the two web pages have really different behaviors of users when they arrive at them, or maybe it's because of noise. Whatever sample of users I got today, they just behave differently. But if I do it again and again and again, the actual difference is not uh, 1% to 2% between them. What statistical significance does is it tries to tell you what are the chances that this difference is an actual difference in reality and not like due to noise or some randomness of the data. And what we've been taught historically, and I teach that to my MBA students and undergrads, and you probably also saw that many times, is that your chances of a false positive, the chance that the test will tell you A is different than B with high significance, but in reality, if you replicate it again and again, the difference will be zero, the chances are very, very low. They're going to be like 1% or 5% or something like that. What we find in our data, actually, the chances are much, much, much higher. 
So you run the A-B test, you design two versions, you see a conversion rate of 1% on version A, 2% on version B. The statistical test tells you this difference is significant. That is, it will replicate again and again if you run it in the wild and deploy one of those things. But actually, in reality, if you do it, you will find that it's less. And it means that basically a lot of the people that are running these A-B tests what they find in the test is they see a big difference, a big effect between A and B. But when they deploy the best version, actually they experience a much, much smaller effect and actually the results were kind of disappointing. So these are kind of, I know I, I, I spoke in length, but we, this is kind of the two things we find. On average, most experiments yield almost nothing. And even the ones that have statistics behind it that tell you they should yield big effect actually end up yielding a much smaller effect. And, and Ron, for the first takeaway... Are there some reasons or hypotheses for why you think that's the case? Is it in the design of the experiments or is there a bigger issue at hand? To tell you the truth, first of all, we don't really know. Okay, like uh, we don't really know what people were thinking when they were designing these tests. We only know the outcomes. But there's a few options and some are, let's call it, better looking than others. So let me give you a positive outcome. Imagine a company is really, really, really good at experimentation. So they run a test and improved and improved and improved their product. At some point, they're going to run out of improvements to make. Okay, So that means that the new things they design, the new tests they design, will have a smaller and smaller and smaller effect. So if you see a zero on average, maybe you're kind of really at the optimum. You're really, really good at what you do and, and you improved everything you can. So this is kind of the positive view. And the non-positive view or, or maybe something you need to look into is actually your designers, product managers, engineers, creative people, they actually are not very good at thinking about their customers and their users and they're not really sure what will work. And they're just trying almost random stuff or kind of the, you know, they read this uh, very famous case study that Google tested 72 shades of blue uh, on their uh, search engine and they found one of them works the best. They're saying, okay, we're going to take a web page and we'll try 17 shades of magenta and hopefully one of them will work best. But most of the times, most changes on most websites, if you change something very small, the effect is not very large. And this is what I think happens there. But we don't know if it's kind of the, the positive view or the more negative view of, of these outcomes. I, I think your point about that famous Google experiment, uh, the one that Marissa Myers ran, is well taken. It makes sense for Google, you know, when they have, have millions and millions and, or maybe billions at this point of users. But it doesn't make sense for anyone else, uh, probably. On the positive side... Are there principles or criteria you think product managers should think about to, to do? So there's a few things. There's things uh, we think you can do, let's call it on the design stage, and there's things we can do on the, on the testing and the statistics, et cetera, stage. On the design stage, and this is exactly how you, you opened kind of by describing experiments, Sumeya, like people are, are usually very conservative, right? You don't want to try very big changes because you're afraid of rocking the boat or breaking something, etc. But because of that, what we see is that a lot of companies are just trying very, very minor changes, which results in not, not very big improvements in, in product. So our recommendation would be, we call it to swing for the fences. Yes, we know you want to be conservative, etc. This is why you do a test. And the amount of harm you can do shouldn't be too large if, if you know, you limit it to a smaller population. But try to make big changes. 
because what happens, and this is what we see in the distribution of these experiments, they have what's called a very long tail. Majority or big number of the effects are going to be very, very close to zero. But once in a while, you get something very extreme, like an outlier. It suddenly has a huge increase or a huge decrease in conversion rates and in, in the click-through rates of, of those web pages. And what you're looking for is these cases where you have a very big increase. They're very, very rare. They're not going to happen if you make very minor changes. So what you want to do is you want to make big changes. Most of the time, maybe it will hurt, but then you go back to the default. Once in a while, you get a big kind of increase. So this is on the design side. This is on the product side. On the testing side, you can also use slightly more sophisticated statistical techniques that will kind of lead you to pick better and better outcomes. So one way is to test more things. And what happens is if you test, let's say, in an A-B test, just A and B, and B turns out to have a higher click-through rate, there's some chance that the result is a false positive. If you test A, B, C, D, E, F, G, many, many, many variations, and let's say G turns out to be the best one, the chance that G is not higher than the rest of the other ones, sorry, not higher, let's say, than the average of the other ones, not all of them, is actually much, much lower. So by trying more things, you actually increase your chances of, uh, as before I said, finding kind of these outliers. And finally, there's something we call replicate the best in the paper. One thing to guard from implementing what we call false discoveries is to say, you run your test, you find your statistical result, now run it again, just on the winning variation, just to see that it replicates, that it runs again, even in a smaller sample. And if you kind of on a different population of users in a different time get the same result and it's consistent, only then implement it. And this guards against a lot of the errors that people are doing in our data. And Sumeya, I want to turn to you and say, how does the takeaway, how do the takeaways that Ron has shared in terms of the thought you put into before you experiment, how does that relate to what you've done or recommended to other product leaders and managers as they're thinking about experimentation? Yeah, I have to say uh, the results are not surprising. <laughs> A-B testing and experimentation is a huge part of a lot of organizations and a lot of world-class organizations. I think the findings that, you know, Ron, you brought up are, are some that I've thought about before and I, I've read about before too, uh, you know, from data scientists. And and so I, I love that your research has confirmed some of it. One of the big takeaways or one of the good reminders that came up in this last part of what you just talked about is around, sometimes I think PMs think that with A-B testing, they should isolate the thing they want to test. They think, to your point, about A-B testing in, a, in this very narrow point of view of, oh, I'm just going to change the color of the button and test that instead of also changing the wording and changing the placement and changing, you know, making a bigger change and then doing the testing based on that. And I think there is, there is this misconception of if you test a lot of changes in one version versus another, you are you don't know what's really driving the the result. When in reality, that's where you can see significant movement, or you can see a little more quote unquote true results, or better results, or more learning. And then, to your point, you can test further to understand what exactly drove that. The second takeaway from your research run, specifically around you know, if you replicate, if you try to replicate the tests, you won't be able necessarily to prove statistical significance again. Was that was that the second one? 
So the idea is that sometimes even with statistical significance, you get high rate of false positives. We call these false discoveries. But once you do the replication, it actually lowers the rate of false discoveries. It kind of lowers the chances that if you pick the, the highest one to implement, it will end up to not be the best one to implement. And that's one, I'm curious if you've seen how people have been able to make that a reality. Because, for example, at work or in a lot of companies, we plan for one test. Sometimes we're impatient to even give it the time that it needs to run, which in itself is something that we need to be vigilant about. But then to run it again for a second time, is that what you're recommending or... So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit more detailed. So the idea is actually not to make the test longer. So suppose you say, I'm going to run a test on a million people, okay? And suppose before the replication, the idea was to say, I'm going to have three versions, A, B, and C. So each one is going to have 330,000, et cetera, people assigned to it. What we're saying is saying, no, no, assume you're going to do a replication. So that means first run an A, B, C test on those three versions on a, on a share of those million people, let's say 600,000, so 200,000 each, and then pick the best one. So this is going to be, let's say, version C. And let's say version A was the baseline you wanted to compare to. Now run it again on the rest of the 400,000 people and just compare C to A. Okay. So in the end, you run the experiment exactly the length you plan to do it. You assign less people to the, you kind of do it in two stages. Less people do the first stage of identifying the best outcome out of the many variations to compare to the baseline. But then you replicate it only versus the baseline. And this makes it statistically much, much, much stronger. And this is kind of what we show in the paper. So Sumeya, how does that approach compare to what you've seen done? And what resonates with you? And what, what questions do you continue to have? Yeah, I thank you so much for that clarification, because I, I had imagined that you would do the same experiment the same way twice. And I, I was just thinking through, you know, the dynamics of convincing the team and everyone that we need to do this a second time just to confirm accuracy. And that can be a, a really tough thing to do. But what you just described is, I think, a part of healthy experiment design. I don't necessarily think we do this all the time, but it is consistent with what the types of experiments we've ran. Ron, I want to kind of dig deeper into your your research that you, you have recently published in Marketing Science. What What's one high-level takeaway that you would give to somebody? And then what's the justification? What Where's the evidence to suggest that high-level takeaway? So the high-level takeaway, I think, is a lot of people think A-B testing is, I think the word in English is panacea, right? You know, it's kind of, it's going to solve all my problem, right? I'll, I'll let the designers and the product managers come up with ideas and the engineers will implement them. And kind of the world will tell me what works, okay? It has all of the statistics behind it and all of the science and it's kind of uh, easy to implement and it's wonderful. And what I tell my, my students, you know, we have all of the science and the machinery, but in the end, we need creativity, <laughs> We, we need to think of good things to experiment with. We need to, under, like going basics to, to basics of marketing, to understand our consumers, to know what they like and what they want, to know how we can give them good service, etc. And 
the way kind of our, our data supports that, what we have in our data is not like a very random data set. So our data set comes from Optimizely. So at the time when we collected this data, this data is 2014. In a second, I'll say why it's that old. But it's collected from Optimizely, which at the time was the largest A-B testing platform um, on the internet, except for if like you're working for Google or Microsoft or Facebook, which have their own internal platforms. And we collected all of the experiments that ran, that started there in a specific month. And at the time, after some filtering for bad data, etc., it's from over 1,300 companies. And we have very large companies in the data and very small companies. So we think it's pretty representative of what people are running at the time. And the important thing to understand is I don't think people are trying just stuff because it's easy. At the time, you still needed a designer to design the web page, someone to set it up, etc. You needed to invest time in those experiments. And even in that, uh, the outcome, we see that the results are somewhat disappointing. Once in a while, some company is very good. So this is kind of one high-level takeaway that the data supports. A-B testing just in itself might not solve your problem. What we do see, and this is kind of the saving grace of that, experience really helps. So companies in our data that had more experiments that they were running before, so they kind of knew how to use A-B testing and over time, et cetera, they improved in it. They saw bigger gains. They saw bigger effects. They saw lower false positives, et cetera. And kind of my... My recommendation would be, even if you start and you see the results are pretty disappointing initially, understand there's also some experience curve to the art of A-B testing and keep on learning and continuing. And in the end, kind of it's going to work. Just want to uh, finalize why we collected data from 2014. In 2015, Optimizely changed how they display statistics to help the user. And we wanted to kind of collect the data from the time when they were using what kind of we teach at school, which is a very, very basic statistics. All right. And I know we're going to get into, I have Sumeya here. We have to talk about the importance of statistical significance or lack thereof, or I want to get into a debate about that uh, at later in the show here. But Sumeya, first, uh, Ron gave us a couple takeaways from his research about how you think about designing and interpreting A-B test results. And I'm curious if you would be willing to share any best practices that you've observed regarding A-B tests in, in both the design, what should you do as you're thinking about what A-B tests to run, executing it, and then interpreting the results? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say the number one thing to think about beyond the points that Ron brought up, the, the experimentation design, is to actually understand the metrics that you want to watch for. So I've seen people look at too many metrics or too few metrics or not even understand what metrics they need to look at. And they're just looking at this experiment and letting the experiment talk to them somehow. <laughs> but as part of experiment design, I think it's really important to understand, are you looking... So conversion rate, yes, is an obvious one. But if you are, for example, working on an onboarding flow, and trying to to improve it, you might be able to get a lot more understanding of where people are dropping off, where they're coming back in, rather than just completion of the of the onboarding flow. Ultimately, the completion of the flow is what you're interested in, but you know, collecting the other data at the same time can be more informative and where the learning comes in. And the reason why this is important is because some of that data does not just come at you for free. You have to actually set up 
your metrics to uh, you you have to set up your your tech uh, on the back end to collect that data so that it can be part of the the experiment that's one so don't forget about the metrics design part of the experiment and then i i don't think i can stress this point about you know, talking to your customer, doing customer interviews, customer observation, doing that validation with your customer is extremely important. If you if you can't get to statistical significance, that's what you're going to have to rely on anyway. So do that anyway to start with, and then let the experimentation just help you with the stuff you can't get to at a larger scale for the riskier bets. And then I'd like to chime in, float this, Sumeya, feel free to, to shut me down here. But connecting uh, this conversation, both what Ron is saying and Sumeya is saying, to conversations that we've had before, it's really important for a product manager to have the why really understood. And so the why, there's, as Sumeya was commenting, the metrics that matter, what are the metrics that you're targeting and striving for? Also, the why is what customer outcomes are you trying to achieve? So what is it? What is the need you're trying to satisfy the customer and what is your vision for them? And experimentation should flow from that, just like every other decision of a product manager, truly understanding the why, what your, the metrics that matter for your company, the metrics that matter for your customer? What are you trying to do for your customer? And then thoughtfully designing experiments that really should move the needle accordingly. And I think that kind of connects to what Ron's saying, which is this just throwing stuff out there to find out which shade of blue uh, is probably less effective than having that that purpose of what, what you're trying to achieve. I want to turn to Ron, put him on the spot, and do you have any questions for Sumeya that'll either help you decide, uh, help you communicate these results in the pros and cons of them going forward, or might help you create new results that could be beneficial to product managers. So do you have any questions for our product executive in residence? So I, I have a question I ask all people, you know, because we in academia, we write papers about experiments, uh, but unless you do behavioral research, you rarely actually run them, right? So I have a question for Sumeya, and actually it's two questions, so it has two parts. The first one, and, and you raised kind of this topic, Jeff, is what is the importance of statistical significance in the organization? I know what is the importance to for statistics, okay? But how is it being used by people? Does it even come up in discussions and designs, etc.? And the other question is more of a decision question. Suppose you run an experiment and, and you finish the experiment, and you know you have uh, version A has a conversion rate of one uh, percent, and version B is a conversion rate of two percent. But the result is not statistically significant. What do you do? Like, what does the organizations that you've been in usually do in that case? How do they continue, not continue? I don't know, right? Because I'm interested in how are decisions being made uh, with these types of experiments. So I'd love, I'd love to hear the experience. Yeah, absolutely. So on the first part of the question, just to clarify, you want to hear about design and how does statistical significance matter in it? Yeah, so for example, do people use it to decide when to stop or do, do, do they look for it? Do they ask about yeah. it? I, I'll, I'll talk about one very specific scenario here where I had to run an experiment in a B2B company. I had, I had to run the experiment because an executive wanted us to build something <laughs> that based on customer interviews, we determined that no customer wants it. And so... 
using just that data of customer interviews was not good enough. So we actually had to design an experiment that had thousands of participants in it with enough statistical significance in the results that he couldn't argue it. <laughs> so this is a very specific scenario where, you know, the executive, uh, we're, we're talking at the, the level of the CEO, asked a lot of questions about how can I trust this results? Who is represented in this sample? What is the statistical significance? We, we got all those questions. So it depends, I, I would say, on, on the executive and the kind of decision that need to be made. This was a decision that had to contradict the executive's strategy and plans and everything he wanted to do essentially for that year. So there had to be a lot more due diligence done there. Frankly, the, the, the actual experiment didn't take more than four weeks to run because it just was so obvious in terms of the results of the or the feedback from the the consumer the for the second part of the question when we have results that are not so obvious this is where product sense and consensus are part of the decision making depending on what that decision is or what that experiment is. For example, I was in one startup, well, it was at that point four years old, where we were doing a complete redesign of the flagship product. And when it came to deciding between one design versus the other of the whole product, the results were not conclusive. And so at the end, we made the decision just based on what the team thought would be the better product. And by team, I mean executives in the company, essentially. So I think in my case, the examples I've seen where the results are not, the actual quantitative results are not conclusive, it ends up being a people-based decision. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Samir. Excellent. So I'm going to throw one more plug. I see Kunal out there. If he, We're talking about experimentation, and we have Sumeya and a professor at Wharton who's done some research on A-B tests and how there's some false positives and how to mitigate them. Uh, so hop up on stage if you want to chime in on experimentation, A-B tests, or ask a question. Kunal, it worked. He's coming. So while we're waiting for Kunal to get uh, geared up with a question or con comment, Sumeya, did you have the question you wanted to ask Ron? My question, Ron, is around experiment design. You talked, I, I think you brought up a couple of really good examples around one, using the usual, you know, customer insights and talking to your customer to, to help you drive some of those solutions to thinking big or the, did you call them the moonshots or what was the... The phrase I, call, I call the swing for the fences, but I don't yes. play baseball. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either, but swing for the fences. Got it. <laughs> and then, and then the the last one, or at least something that I always wonder about, is this the the product sense. You know, people have experiences that identify patterns. They become part of their subconscious. How does that? How do you see that factor? 
into some of this experimentation? It's, it's, this is a very hard question because, you know, when, when we think of experiments, we usually think very short term, right? You make a, a change and you see what happens and, and that's about it. And again, maybe, maybe you have um, an example I'm not thinking of, but, you know, patterns and experiences, they, they take time to build and there's maybe you have a habit of things like that. I think my, my view would be that it depends how big the population is that, that, that you're working with, okay? If you're working with a very, very large and diverse population, then you can maybe design experiments for subpopulations. And then what happens? So basically, you kind of you can think about it the, opposite, the other way around. You kind of do a reverse experiment. You run an A-B test. Uh, so let's say half the population is, is version A, half is version B. But then you take the descriptors of the people, so their past experiences, their habits, sometimes it's just uh, demographics or things like that. And you try to customize the treatment for each person. So you try to say, oh, for this person's version A worked better and for that person's version B worked better. Now it has a problem because each person sees only one version. You don't know what would happen with the other version. They never see the other version. So you kind of need to use sophisticated statistical techniques to do a prediction. I saw how they responded to version A. I need to predict how they would respond to version B based on someone similar to them that saw version B. And this way I can maybe customize things. So I don't know if this is what you had in mind, but this is kind of, I would call it a more advanced version of A-B testing where things are going. But for that, you need much more data usually more sophisticated machine learning and still very good kind of versions to test. Actually, I, I do have a follow-up on, on what you just said because a lot of software now is not only doing the analysis but also doing the optimization. So they, I think Optimizely is one of the packages out there that, for example, allows you not only to test between a uh, you know version A and version B, but then also optimize further on option A. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? I, I, I fully support it. So, you, you, you know, there's A-B testing is almost counterproductive in the sense that it doesn't customize, right? It, it kind of says, okay, whatever you decided to test, this is, this is it. We're not going to learn further. And the more sophisticated approach to optimization, so... You know, there's multiple versions, but one that maybe people have heard it is called a multi-armed bandit. Uh, the reason it's called like that is a one-armed bandit is a slot machine in, in a casino, and multi-armed bandit is just many, many slot machines. And the question is, what order of slot machines do you need to pull to maximize your profit? And somehow that translates exactly to optimization in online experiments. But I'm not going to go into that. But the nice thing about that is this is kind of a continuously running experiment. It's always trying to find the best treatment for people. It's always learning. It's always running. It has a downside. It never stops. It always randomizes. It always tries things. It will reach a better outcome, but it has a few downsides. Usually, it's very hard to explain why the better outcome is whatever the algorithm chose. It can have bias. If it's given the wrong data, etc. it can start doing stuff we don't want to happen, like discriminate, uh, create kind of subpopulations that get, get different treatment than others and things like that. And because it's optimal, but sometimes you don't want this to happen. And finally, and this is man something managers actually found don't like that often, is it's constantly running and they're asking, okay, when is the algorithm making the final decision? There's no final decision. It's always trying to learn. 
So I like it. I trust the algorithm generally. That's kind of a, almost a personal preference. But you, you described this executive that wanted to say, okay, in the end, I want to be the decision maker. It's kind of taking away the power from them. And then these uh, continuous optimization algorithms are usually worse off than A-B testing where you can you know, show the result of the experiment. You can explain why it would work or wouldn't work. I loved your story that you use kind of statistical significance kind of to deflect um, a bad decision with continuously optimizing algorithms. It's really hard to explain them. With A-B testing, it's much easier. All right. Thanks, Ron. And I have to segue, Samaya. You could follow up in a moment. But first, a segue to Kanal, who's been patiently waiting. And he, speaking of inclusive AI and ML, he has been helping the Product Management Center at the University of Washington think about some programming around helping product managers inclusively utilize AI and ML for their own success. So I want to give Kunal some space for a question or comment on anything he heard from Ron. Thank you, Jeffrey, for welcoming me. And hi, everyone. Hi, Sumer. I think I'm joining after a long time. I'm sorry for my voice. I had cold, not COVID. No, I think this topic is very, very important. Uh, how to design an effective experimentation around an hi- hypothesis which you as a product manager have about your users, either while you're building a new product or while you're optimizing the existing experience for your existing user base. I think I have, in my previous experience, I've conducted such experiment and sometimes it has been, the data has been quite surprising and my team has went with certain hypotheses and that hypothesis has not been true and we have discovered something else and we have to conduct another set of experimentation to figure that out. So yeah, I think uh, I was just following the conversation between Sumaya and Ron. So just uh, listening and maybe answer any questions. Thank you. Awesome. Kunal, thanks for being here, and thanks for chiming in on that uh, path to experimentation. Rafi, if I said that right, I want to remind you that How to Succeed in Product Management is recorded and put out as a podcast, so anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. I don't know if that's uh, that's a little scary, right? So, but um, <laughs> anyway, Rafi... Rafi, welcome. A warm welcome. A nice warm welcome (laughs) with the Miranda rights. But Rafi, thanks for joining us today. I'd love to hear what either comment you wanted to add to the conversation or question you have for Kunal, Sumeya, or uh, Professor Berman. I want to first plead the fifth, and then I'll I'll go on with Yeah, I'm really interested in multivariable testing. I heard that as soon as I entered the room. You know, people said, oh, you should be a project manager. I work in marketing ops. And um, unfortunately... I work at small startups who often do not have the sample size needed to do any sort of AB multivariable testing. And so my conundrum has always been, how do I do any sort of testing with very small sample sizes? That's a very common question. Ron, you chiming in? I have a perfect I have a perfect paper. I have a perfect paper for that. <laughs> it's like, you know, when someone asks you a question when you have the next slide in class, right? So I have a research paper, which was published maybe three years ago, that basically says you don't need to do hypothesis testing at all if you want to maximize the profit, especially if you have small samples. And, and let me explain kind of the idea, because we all talked about statistics, et cetera, et cetera. The idea is as following. All of the statistics and hypothesis testing, etc., was designed to answer the following question. Is version A different than version B? Okay. But if you think about it, what you usually care about is the following. You don't care if A is different than B. You also don't even care if A is better than B. 
you only care to say, I want to implement A if A is much better than B, and I want to implement B if B is much better than A. But if A and B are kind of very close to one another, I don't care. Like, whatever, I'll, I'll pick one. I, I don't have enough uh, sample to test it, and I'll move on. So when companies have too small samples to read statistical significance, this is normally the case. And, and the, the, the kind of the most common case we're thinking is um, an email kind of newsletter, right? You send it today. Suppose you have a coupon. It's uh, Tuesday. You have a coupon. You want to send it today. You want to decide if you put the subject line, uh, I don't know, version A or subject line of the email version B. It means you need to make the decision pretty early in the day. The coupon expires tomorrow. The email kind of is irrelevant uh, tomorrow. So you send it to a small subset of the population of the newsletter. You get clicks or open rates or something, and then you decide who to deploy the best outcome. Usually, unless you have a huge company, you're going to have a few thousands of people there. Not everyone is going to open the email, click the coupon, etc. So it's all going to be small samples. What we show in the paper is we designed an experimental design called test and roll. It's very, very, very simple. You pick, you, you run this A-B test of version A and B. You don't do any statistics. You just look at which one has the highest average conversion rate. You pick the one with the highest average and implement it. Okay. What we show in our paper, and this is kind of the fun part, we show this is actually optimal. This is better than a standard hypothesis test and statistical testing we were taught in school. If you want to maximize, <coughs> excuse me, your long-term profits, why? Because the simple experiment where you choose just the highest average, if there's going to be a big difference between A and B, it will find it. It will pick A or B if they're really, really better than the other one with like 100% probability. And if A and B are very, very close to one another, you don't really care. You just implement one of them and move on. And what we do in the paper is we just say how small of a sample do you need in order to maximize that profit. So we have this paper. It's called Test and Roll Profit Maximizing A-B Test. We also have a website, testandroll.com, where you can plug in your... It explains how to use it. You can plug it your sample sizes, etc. It will tell you what should be the... The experiment basically runs in two stages. There's a test stage, which is like kind of this small part where you test A and B. There's a roll stage or a deploy stage where you pick the best one and deploy to the rest of the population. And the website explains how to use them. This idea came to us from a company that says, uh, often we just don't have enough time to run the experiment. We need to know to make a decision about a catalog like in a week. We can't send it by mail to enough people and see the responses, etc. so quickly. So we just do a quick test and roll test, and then we roll out whatever works best. And my co-author, Ellie Fight, who is at Drexel University, and currently she's visiting Amazon, and I kind of did the math for that and designed that and found out this is actually an optimal thing if you pick the size of the test stage correctly. So this is my answer because I love my research, but I don't know what you think, Jeff, and I don't know what you think, Sumeya, about that. Yeah, Sumeya or Kunal, any hot takes, quick reactions to Ron's test and roll as he described it? Questions or comments, hot takes, reactions? Yeah, I love it. I love I love that approach. It's one that I'm going to think about using myself in the future. I, you know, most of the work I do in my current role is in in a similar situation to you Rafi where, you know, we have hundreds of customers and not, you know, millions of customers, so it's hard to to run a quick AB test of any kind. The the last one I ran last year, what you know, took months to a statistically significant place. So I have I have come to the conclusion of I don't 
you know, wanting to run A-B tests and wanting to use a lot of quantitative methods to justify one decision or the other are not one and the same. So what do I mean by that? A-B test is just one method of quantitative experimentation. There are others I can use as well. Others, for example, that include looking at the data that we have on our customers or looking at our customer behavior to to design you know, new features or improve growth, etc. I, I think if you understand your product enough and you understand the the dynamics of your market there are situations where you can just give up on doing ab testing and not fight that battle until the numbers change or you know there is there is tremendous growth that happens or you know it makes sense then to to start thinking about it kunal anything to add any other hot takes on ron's test and roll uh, proposal based off his research yeah i mean i think i'm going to go and look and read myself. Um, so thank you, Ron, for sharing. In the past, when I have been in similar situation, where I don't have the mass or the large number of user base, and I think depending on the problem and the context, I have conduct- conducted the usability study by picking up the random samples and uh, tried to see that what are the challenges and the pain points which customers are facing, right? And then bring that insight back to the product team and sit down with them and work with them to then go and address it. And and then let the user try out the experience themselves and then see now are they with the newer experience, are they able to go past the challenges which they were having earlier? I think you will you will you will start seeing as and when you've released the new experience, you will start start seeing how people are using, how from your support channels, if let's say there was a big pain point which customers were earlier complaining and now has that been died down after you've released that experience. And 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 I think in certain situations, you may not have to get everything right in the first step. You have to make a progress to start with something and then you should have the ability or you're working with the product team that you can able to pivot easily if whatever the iteration you have released doesn't really sit well with the user base. Uh, where they can build the experience with the extensible platform or with the with the add-on which can be removed or can be hidden behind the feature flag. So these are some of the strategies. Uh, I think I like the, the academia perspective on this topic. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kunal, for chiming in. Rafi, anything you say... It doesn't look like it can or will be used against you. I think that was a great question that a lot of uh, people have. Did you get enough from Kunal, Ron, and Sumeya? Uh, yeah, I have the the paper open, or at least his website open, so I need to read through it. I guess I just have one clarifying question, is how does, or maybe this you answer it already, and you could just say, go read it. How does this differ from the uh, setting a threshold or expected expected change? So like I expect to see, you know, three times the amount of growth. Otherwise, don't don't bother to come contact me. You know, it's roughly the, it's roughly the same idea. But what we're trying to do is we're trying kind of where would this three times or two times come from? This is the, the question, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to find kind of the optimal threshold that will say this is what will maximize your profit given your past data. So given one company has experiments where they expect uh, 20% increase. Another company, they have experiments where they have 4% increases, etc. And we're kind of trying to optimize that. 
What happens with the threshold thing is that you'll see that the sample sizes it requires turns out usually to be very large. So just to give you an idea, uh, if you want to measure advertising experiments, you will need millions of people to find any effect. And usually companies don't run experiment, uh, sorry, advertising campaigns necessarily that large. However, with our method, it might tell you, given your past, in, your past data, your population size, etc., you might need just thousands to maximize your profit. So this is uh, kind of the outcome. We have, I have a blog post also on my webpage that explains it kind of less with just reading the, the academic paper, and maybe this will be more useful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for joining us on stage, Rafi. I appreciate it. And now this concludes our, our conversation here. And I need to give my plug because I, you know, I always love to say just how much the Product Management Center enjoys bringing you together here on stage uh, or in the audience and bringing some brilliant people together like the five, I said five, but I'm one of them. So the four people who have joined me here, you know, bringing together the best of academia, the best of industry, and really pushing product management forward, helping all of you drive success. And so grateful that Ron uh, Berman at Wharton showed up today. Before I give you a chance for concluding thoughts, Ron, I want to give you a chance for, an, we have quite a few people here in the audience, and then many, many, many people more will be listening to the recording, product managers and aspiring product managers. Is there any way that they could be helpful to you as you shape the, the next insights that you start to try to work on? Um. Thanks, Jeff. So basically, I, I continue to do the research in this area, and companies constantly reach out to me and say, hey, can we help and what can we do? So what we love doing is, we love, first of all, we love helping companies solve their problems. So usually uh, when I talk to companies, they tell me their challenges. This gives us research ideas. We kind of try to find a solution. We can write an interesting paper, teach something to our students, etc. So if you have an interesting challenge, reach out to me. My email is on my website, and I'm always uh, happy to talk about experimentation. But even uh, beyond that, if you're a company that runs a lot of experiments and you have data that you're willing to share, of course, it's under NDAs and confidentiality, and we're very good at, at preserving privacy of users, etc. And you would like to kind of try what uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, try to compute how many false discoveries you have, try to see if test and roll works for you, etc., feel free to reach out to me and we'll see if we can find a way to collaborate that hopefully we can then later maybe write a research paper together and, and publish new results and, and kind of advance the, the field of A-B testing and generally experimentation forward. All right. So if you are in the audience or listening in on the any major podcasting app, I'm going to put Sume on the spot. How many major podcasting apps can you name? And I could tell you whether they count as major enough to have how to succeed in product management. <laughs> well, I'm just going to use the ones I use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and that's it, essentially. <laughs> okay, it's there. Those qualify as major podcasting apps as as measured by how to succeed in product management is downloadable there. I think we're also on TuneIn. If you do TuneIn, I think we're. Uh, you could listen to us on Alexa by asking Alexa to play how to succeed in product management podcast. And uh, yeah, those are the only ones I could think of too, but they're everywhere. Kunal, you had one for us? Yeah, I think Google Play Store, Google Podcast, right? Yep, those there you go, Google Podcast. Android. 
Yep. You can go to your Google podcast and you know, subscribe to the product management center. Excellent. Kunal, I like the extra pitch to, to not just go there and download it, but to subscribe, like and subscribe. And then give us a five-star review, actually, while we're at the asking part. Help others discover insights such as this that you heard here today. So without that plug, or with that plug, and a little attempt at levity, Sumaya, because we don't have Red here today, and he usually brings the laughter. I had to give it a shot with the name that uh, <laughs> name that major podcasting. <laughs> and and by the way, I just uh, tested it with Google, and it it did start playing. Excellent. So excellent. It, it is on that that now qualifies as a major podcasting app. Ron, I know we had you till five. I want to give you a chance though for concluding thoughts. Anything that you hope the audience leaves this conversation with? So first of all, I want to say how much I enjoyed. It's like the first time I'm on Clubhouse. So I enjoyed, I guess, chat and podcast. And for, and thank you for hosting me, Sumeya and Jeff. It was wonderful. I kind of try to remember that in my experience, I, you know, I had, I teach A-B testing to, stu- to MBA students. And I asked them, you know, what do you think about this result? What would you do? And then uh, some student raises their hand and says, wouldn't the data scientist just tell me what to do? And I kind of, you know, I facepalmed a little bit and I said, no, actually, the data scientist will tell you probably the wrong answer given this thing. So my suggestion is don't always kind of believe or trust the data or the outcome, even if it actually matches your intuition, but often it actually might not. Try to understand where it's coming from, what's maybe behind it, what might explain it. And this will make you both a better experimenter, also a better decision maker, and definitely a better product manager. And I think this is really important. All right. Thank you, Ron, for that takeaway. Kunal, uh, you're a great friend of the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, again, helping us uh, develop programming within the Inclusive Product Management Summit that helps AI be used more inclusively and success uh, successfully. Do you have any one or two bite-sized takeaways you want to leave people with as they think about A-B testing? I think get familiar with this area as you're going to go further and further. You will come across in your uh, interaction with the engineering team that there is especially if you're working on the user design, user experience or platform, there'll be a lot of opinions uh, on how it should be. And I think the best way to go about that is is with the hypothesis and then conducting an experimentation using hypothesis and then running the A-B testing and then getting the data and then sharing with with your team. I think I can tell you from the experience that you're going to get a lot of credibility with your engineering team and with your management and with the with the user base because now you are pretty much letting the data to drive those critical decisions as opposed to you know whoever is the highest paid is making a call and then you know you're low, you're just releasing the user experience and that may not be very useful for your user base thank you all right. Thank you, Kunal, for hopping in, giving some valuable insight. And then Sumeya, Queen of Clubhouse, our regular guest, or not guest, I don't even know what to call you, that, the positive <laughs> resident and expert expert in residence, uh, brilliant, generous uh, soul that you are. Any concluding thoughts you want to leave with the audience with? Build on what Ron and Kunal have said. I th- I love that both of you have highlighted this the aspect of learning and using data. I think that's something uh, product managers who are new to the field should take seriously. Try to learn more and more about how to look at data. But more importantly, just to build on that, I think one of the things we all worry about is the stuff we don't know that we don't know. The, the, The insights that we're constantly looking for because we're not sure that there is if there is something we are not aware of that we should be aware of. And for that, 
yes, in the in in the experiments, you probably have determined metrics and results you want to look at, but forget about just that. Look at the other data that will help you to understand your product and your customer further. So yes, I'm all for designing experiments well and deciding on the data and results you want to look at. But once you've done that, go back to those experiments, look at the data that, that gets collected in them and see what other insights you can capture from those experiments that help you further in your work as a product manager. And to do that, usually you have to have a lot more understanding of how to look at data, you know, so you you know what is noise and what is when it, what is truly insightful. So hopefully this is just, you know, with the beginning for you and this great relationship you're going to have with data and it's only going to get better. All right. Thank you, Sumeya. Thank you, Ron Berman, Professor at Wharton. Email him if you want to connect with with his research and and help create uh, new research uh, by either sharing data or sharing your questions. And if you liked what Sumeya had to say, Sumeya is on the Product Management Center Slack channel. So you could join the Product Management Center Slack channel, reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, to ask to get invited, follow up with her with questions. And Kunal is on the Product Management Center Slack channel. So you could connect with him on anything that, that you heard him say if you have questions. And Rafi, I don't know if you're on the Product Management Center Slack channel, but I bet you will be. Any, I don't know why, and why I think that's funny, but my, my predictive analytics suggest that perhaps you will be uh, to answer questions or ask questions. But anyway, I want to say thank you again to Samaya Ron and Kunal. This was a great conversation. This is what the Product Management Center is all about, bringing brilliant people together, uh, exchanging ideas, and helping everybody have access to this knowledge and access to opportunity to connect with each other and the best ideas ideas. And so in the spirit of access, I do want to do a little plug for our inclusive product management accelerator. Tonight, we have 48 new uh, people in the winter cohort. So we had 46 future product managers in the fall cohort. We have 48 in the winter cohort that starts tonight. And we are on a mission to broaden access to economic opportunity and help inspire more inclusive innovations. And our goal this year is 100 new product managers from historically marginalized communities by June 2022. To make that a reality, I need all of you, anybody who's listening, if you are a product manager, start talking about the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator and get hiring managers thinking about hiring from this brilliant talent pool that's been carefully selected, methodically trained, and continuously supported by their mentors, their peers, and the University of Washington. So please reach out to me if you if you want to get connected with that talent or just start circulating that the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator exists so that hiring managers know when they're looking for diverse, brilliant product management talent, they know where to find it. Um, Anyway, I've spoken too much, but thank you again, everybody. And we are here every week uh, on Clubhouse, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, thank you for being here.